Okay, Jesse, last week's murder was infuriating and senseless. What do you have for me this time around? After a Houston socialite mother of two is gunned down in her own home, the investigation leads down a twisted role of illegal activity, online affairs, greed, duplicity, and two seriously suspect brothers. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Hi, Andy. Hi, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about brothers in arms causing harm and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. And as always, if you enjoy this show, please, please, please love slash murder a five star rating on your podcast app. Subscribe and review to help new people discover the show. Also, if you're interested in supporting the show more directly, head on over to patreon.com slash lovemurderpod where you can learn all about the different tiers of support. Speaking of Patreon, <laughs> oh boy, you guys really showed up this week. We cannot thank you enough. Andy has committed to doing some bonus content every month. So you're going to get two stories per month now. <laughs> so thank you, Andy, for doing that. And it really, really like sealed the deal when we saw the results. I mean, that was ridiculous. <laughs> Everyone was so supportive and amazing to our Patreon this month. It was unbelievable. So thank you for all of you guys, new patrons. We are overwhelmed with seeing you and meeting you. And we can't wait to get you your goodies. But for now, let's start by getting you your shout out. Yeah, we'd like to welcome Kathy W. and Heather H. Jill W., Melissa F., and Tiffany F., Hattel P., Julie W., and Maggie O., Christy D., Kim K., and Dana N., Joanna T., Tanner W., and MJ H., Maria C., Olivia M., and Whitney B., Ashley D., Candice T., and Janet C., Melissa H., Monica B., and Michelle H., and finally, Jessica S., Thank you guys so much. We cannot tell you how much it means to us, and we really appreciate it. So we're going to do our darndest to get you all the goodies and to over-deliver on the bonus content. Let's get going, Jess. This I'm, like, very intrigued by the lead, so. This is some sort of tale. I actually have no idea where I found it. So if you guys recommended it, please let me know, because I could not find a recommendation. This one's crazy. It also is the very first episode of the series 1990s, The Deadliest Decade. I don't think I know that. Oh, it's an investigation discovery show. And okay, okay, okay. It's phenomenal. I think they started with the 1980s first, and then they moved okay. to the 1990s. And wow, you know what? We're all in a 90s nostalgia moment right now, so I'm just leaning into it. Okay, let's do it. It was just after 9.30 p.m. on a pleasant April night in 1997 when businessman Bob Angleton turned his Chevy Blazer onto his street Ella Lee Lane. Bob, the son of a Greek immigrant turned builder, had worked hard to afford the beautiful home in the affluent River Oak section of Houston, Texas. But that night, Bob's mind wasn't on his work or his wealth. It was on his wife. He and lovely Doris had been married for just about 15 years. 
Together, they had two incredible 13-year-old daughters, Allie and Nikki. The athletic twins had taken to softball, and Bob had done everything in his power to encourage their passion. He coached their teams, he drove to faraway games, and he even built a private batting cage in the family's backyard. Wow. So this is a very nice area. This is where astronauts live, former politicians. We had the, during the 90s, it's the Exxon executives, the Enron executives. This is a fancy, fancy ass place to live. Yeah, money, money, money. They were coming home from a softball game at that moment. And the twins were also thinking of their mother and worrying a little bit. Doris had left before the game had begun to run back to the house and retrieve a special bat for one of the girls but she had never returned. It was definitely weird. Doris was a PTA queen and mother extraordinaire who had never missed a game. She was just as committed to their softball experience as Bob was. And she certainly did not break promises to her children. Bob assured Allie and Nikki that their mom probably just got distracted. She was a very giving and loving person. Maybe a friend had called and needed something and she had dropped everything to help her. Yeah. He assured them that there was nothing to worry about. But as he turned the blazer into the driveway, he noticed that Doris's Suburban was parked in its usual place, but the rear side door of the house was wide open, which was very strange, especially given that their dog wasn't out. So maybe Doris might have come home, opened the door and let the dog out, but the dog's not out. The door's wide open. It was just clear that something in this scenario was not normal. And he would later say that he could tell that there was trouble. So maybe it was intuition. Maybe it was something else altogether. But Bob Angleton knew something was wrong. He quickly backed the SUV up. He kind of backed out of the driveway, dialed 911 on his cell phone. And when the operator asked, did he need medical assistance, fire assistance, what did he need help with? He said, I don't know what I need help with, operator. I'm at my house. My wife doesn't answer the phone. The back door is ajar. I have children in the car. So he's freaking out. The operator doesn't know that anything is really wrong yet. But she says, we'll send the police right away. And he said, should I go into the house? And she said, I think you can just stay with your phone on you and speak with me the whole time. I was going to say, but also like leave the kids. Like, I don't think I would leave the kids. And I guess he would later say that his kids were like, dad, don't go out there. Don't leave the car. So he told the operator that he needed to charge his cell phone's batteries anyway. And he hung up. So there was a police officer that was only a few blocks away from the Angleton house when the call went over dispatch and he heard it. So he originally thought that something was odd about the call because Bob had used the word ajar. And he thought that that was just like a strange word. It jumped out at him for some reason. And he just had another sense that something wasn't quite right in the situation, even though it sounded like an innocent call. We don't know that something's wrong. We don't know she could have Mm -hmm. come home, fallen down. Like, it doesn't mean something sinister has happened. But right away, also, the officer also got a feeling that something just wasn't quite right. So he approached the house and he found Bob outside. I think one of their friend neighbors had come over as well. Bob had left the girls in the car. I'm assuming he locked it. But he said, I didn't go inside yet. The kids didn't want me to go inside. They were still in the car at that point. So Officer Carr stepped inside the house and he was holding a flashlight because it was after dark at this point. On the landing, his foot connected with something. It was small and it was underfoot. And he recognized the sound of it as it accidentally kicked away from his foot. It was the sound of a cartridge shell. 
his skin prickling, he flashed the light ahead, and just over 11 feet in the distance, a woman lay completely still in a pool of her own blood. Officer K.P. Carr did not have to take a pulse to know that the woman, undoubtedly Doris Angleton, was dead. So the officer then came out, and he had the very undesirable job of having to tell Bob that his wife was indeed deceased and that his worst fears had come true. So Bob, I guess, argued at first with him, was like, no, you don't know anything. Like, I don't think she's dead. And then it finally seemed to hit him, and he realized that there was no arguing with what the officer had seen and what was the truth. And at that point, he collapsed against Officer Carr, who encouraged him to pull himself together because the two girls were watching him from the car. And they were also freaking out at this point. And of course, naturally terrified. They're coming off a successful softball game. They're wondering where their mother is. And then they unwittingly are driving into this horrible nightmare. When the detectives arrived, it was immediately clear that what happened to Doris was definitely not suicide. This was not self-inflicted. Her body was riddled with bullets. And spent shell casings littered the floor. Nothing else in the very nice home was disturbed. This was definitely not a burglary gone wrong. This was a calculated hit. Crazy. And Doris, we're going to talk a lot more at Doris at length later, but she is just a lovely 46-year-old mother, PTA-type socialite. It seems inconceivable that she would have enemies. The detective started a tape recorder and began questioning Bob about where he was, which was obviously at his children's softball game, coaching in front of tons of witnesses. And how did he know something was wrong? Why did he call 911? How did he have that sixth sense to know not to go in the house? Yeah, that's actually sus. It's a little sus that he wouldn't go in the house at all. Yeah, I feel like Dan would run inside. Yep, and this point comes out later. If there's any question, you've been trying to call your partner, they're not answering, you could maybe lock your kids in the car and say, I'll be right back. Yeah, so they're already a little suspicious, even though he has an airtight alibi. So they ask him, who could possibly want Doris dead? Please tell us. And he paused for a very long time, and then he said, I have a few ideas. Would you turn off the tape? So now he wants something off the record. Well, Bob had reasons for not wanting this conversation on the record. As it would turn out, the respected businessman who owned multiple houses as well as a golf course and who rubbed shoulders with the city's elite at an exclusive country club had made his fortune by being Houston's biggest bookie. The man had made millions off of illegal gambling and then informing on his rivals. Wow. As he said to the detectives investigating his wife's murder... I work for the Houston Police Department. Well, that admission, Andy, was just barely scratching the surface in this diabolical tale of love, greed, illicit online lovers, sibling rivalry, and power. There's a lot of twists and turns in this Texas case, y'all. So I've got a couple sources today. The book I used primarily was Death in Texas by Carlton Smith. I also read a Texas Monthly article from November 1997, so just a few months after this all went down, called The Bookmaker's Wife by veteran crime reporter Skip Hollinsworth. I love Skip Hollinsworth's work. Anytime there's like a Texas case, I immediately look him up to see if he has covered it. 
he wrote that great article about the Santa Bank robbery yes. in Texas. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, he's fantastic. He's also actually on the episode of 1990's The Deadliest Decade that I watched too, which was great to put a face to, to a name and a byline. But yeah, the episode is season one. Episode one is called Lone Star. We're going to start by talking about our dearly departed Doris. Doris McGowan was born on April 11th, 1951, to parents. One day after you. One day after me. And you know, it's Heather's birthday too. Oh, no way. Yes, guys. Heather, our love murder assistant extraordinaire of the love murder team. Her birthday's at the 11th and mine's the 10th. So Doris was born on April 11th. And actually, I saw a lot of similarities between her personality and Heather, who you guys obviously don't get to hear from Heather, but she's a very effervescent and friendly and giving and kind person. So Doris was a delightful child who grew into a kind and fun-loving young woman. When she was only three years old, she started telling neighbors and their friends that she was going to have a baby brother. Like, it was happening. She was like, I have a secret. I'm going to have a baby brother. So when they congratulated Anne, her mother, she was completely baffled because she wasn't even pregnant. <laughs> she's, like, so, she's like, um, I guess she is telling you something we don't know, but we're not having a baby anytime soon. But pretty soon after that, she did get pregnant and she had a little boy. Stop. Yep. So she predicted her little brother Steve's birth. And they were very close their entire life. And they had a great sibling bond. Steve would later tell author Carlton Smith about his sister. The biggest thing about Doris is that everybody knew that when she was around, they were going to have fun. She was always upbeat. She didn't waste time complaining. She just was always doing things that were fun. She was always having some sort of adventure at the drop of a hat. And she wasn't looking for trouble, but she just had a knack for making people comfortable. She remembered things about people, even people she hadn't seen for years, and she'd include them in a way that made people feel good. And that's really what everyone said about Doris. Carlton Smith wrote, it was as if she had been born with a gene that gifted her in getting along with people. After high school, Doris attended the University of Texas and graduated with a degree in speech pathology. She taught school for a few years before she moved into the much more lucrative field of pharmaceutical sales. With Doris's doe-eyed good looks and sparkling personality, she was a smashing success. In 1976, when she was about 25 years old, Doris met and married her first husband, Bill Beck. The couple moved to the suburbs, and within a couple years, Doris was growing dissatisfied. Approaching her 30th birthday, it was still like a year and a half away or something, but still, she was thinking that life was starting to pass her by. Saturn return. Yeah, she was just like, I don't know if the suburbs are right for me. She wanted to get back into the city. She wanted to get back into a very different life. And she wanted something more exciting for the rest of her life. And she definitely found it in the form of a six-foot-tall Greek-American with a Northeastern accent and a confident demeanor. <laughs> the man was none other than Bob Angleton. Bob and Doris met at a party they were attending with their spouses, mind you, in late 1979. Risque. Yes, it seems like Bill Beck, Doris's first husband, may have been one of Bob's gambling clients. No way. Yeah, that's how they connected. A woman who was at the very same party described Bob as swarthy and masculine and said that he had a reputation for making money. I thought you were going to say something else. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, just money. <laughs> Bob was immediately attracted to Doris, which, again, was not hard because there was another 
male friend who talked to the author of the book I read and said that he believed that every guy who knew Doris had like a little bit of a crush on her, was like a slightly in love with her. She just had that warm personality and she was a very cute woman. But immediately Bob was taken with Doris and he had some brass balls too because he allegedly pulled Bill, Doris's husband at the time, aside and said, anytime you decide to get rid of that pretty lady, I want to know about it. <laughs> rude. Whoa, I know. That aggressive. is rude. It's like when you're ready to throw her out to the trash, let me know and I'll pick her up. It's aggressive and not particularly romantic. No. Well, it didn't take very long for that to happen, although my guess is that it was not Bill's decision to part ways. Within months of that first auspicious meeting, Doris had filed for divorce and Bob soon followed suit, ending his own marriage and being first in line to date the charming Doris. So let's move on and talk about Bob, Doris's soon-to-be second husband. Bob's father was a Greek cabin boy named Nicholas Anglito, who jumped ship in a Texas port town in the early 1920s. He changed the family name to Angleton, married an American, and moved to the Northeast, where he became a wealthy builder in New Jersey. He apparently got a big start by getting a very lucrative contract building barracks for World War II. And then he ended up branching out into building apartment complexes in New Jersey. Cool. So Bob's dad was scrappy and ambitious, and those were traits that Bob definitely inherited. And Bob also did grow up very comfortable. This isn't your rags-to-riches, first-generation America story. That was his dad's story. So he grew up actually very comfortable. He had an older brother who was six years his senior named Roger, and the boys enjoyed the very best in life. They reportedly had a beautiful house on an acre and a half of land. And they also would spend their summers in Greece, sailing the Mediterranean on a yacht. Yeah, not a bad setup. Not a bad gig if you can get it. I summer on my yacht in Greece. (laughs) (laughs) So Roger and Bob were opposites. Though both brothers were very bright, Roger was unruly, rebellious, and unfocused. While Bob was very type A, hardworking, and cerebral. Roger was constantly getting into trouble that his parents had to bail him out of. He wrecked multiple cars. It was... That sort of thing. I didn't find any, like, criminal issues when he was a younger person. Still so dangerous and not okay. Yeah. And so eventually they sent him to military school to straighten him out. And I think it worked at least for a little while. Meanwhile, Bob ended up graduating from Syracuse University in 1971. But he, too, had his own little rebellious streak. He ended up defying his father and marrying his first wife, Lolly, the same year that he graduated college. And Lolly was a flight attendant. And I guess Papa Angleton did not find her up to snuff to marry his just graduated from college son. But he said, screw you, dad. I'm doing it anyway. So that's who he was married to when he met Doris. Some, I think, eight years down the line. Both Roger and Bob went into sales, and I think that they actually had a restaurant together in Florida for a little while, and when that went bust, the brothers moved together to Texas, and Roger, actually, the oldest, who had been kind of the 'er ne'er-do-well, found very early success in selling real estate. This was during an oil boom, and so he found ways to get in with people, to sell them properties around the time people were making a lot of money in the area. Well, Bob had tried to go into selling cars and he wasn't having such a good experience. He was just a little too East Coast fast talking to be a car salesman in Texas. They were like, who's this guy? 
He seems like he's trying to sell me something. All the time. All the time. Which he was. He's a car salesman. So Bob was very accustomed to being the high achieving brother. And he had a very difficult time with this turnabout. And it seems likely that this is where a real sibling rivalry was born. Not content to be the less successful brother, Bob decided that if he could not make it legitimately, he'd make his fortune illegally. Sometime in the late 1970s, Bob became a bookmaker, a.k.a. bookie, which, if you guys don't know, is basically someone who determines gambling odds and receives and pays off bets. I'd never heard it called a bookmaker. That's the first time today. Yeah, well, I didn't know it was called a bookmaker, too, until I read Skip Hollenworth's article, which is called The Bookmaker's Wife. And apparently it was kind of hush-hush. We'll get into what they told their neighbors, what he did, which is like this generic like businessman. It's kind of like how when you're on a dating site these days, you got to steer clear of the guys who say that they're an entrepreneur. (laughs) They don't say in what. They're just like, I'm an entrepreneur. In general. In general, yes, in life. So yeah, so it was really funny because speaking of the bookmaker thing is that when people did come into their confidence, eventually they would tell their inner circle that he was a bookie. But Doris would call it a bookmaker. And so apparently she told a close girlfriend, well, you know, Bob's a bookmaker. And the woman said, I didn't know he was so literary. Or that you could make so much money making books. (laughs) Yes, exactly. So Bob initially began working on the side for a banker customer of his. So it was a banker who bought a car from him and was like, they were talking about how business was rough. And he's like, well, I got something you could get into. I got a sideline for you that will make you a lot of money. And it did not take Bob long to be very successful about this because to be a good bookie, you have to be smart. You have to understand the odds. You basically have to balance everything else out in your head and make the odds so that you never lose the money, that basically the people who lose are paying off the people that win and so on and so forth. And he was great at it. So very quickly, he liquidated his car sales business and he went full time into being a bookie. Still, of course, there was a lot of competition in the Houston area, and Bob was hungry to get it. When he was busted by a vice officer pretty early in his career, they made him an offer that he could not refuse. They said that if he would go informant and turn in other bookies that he knew about and the competition, that they would look the other way when it came to his business. Wow. Yeah, so that's two birds, one stone for old Bob. He got to chase others out of the business, all while getting police protection to continue his operation. Yep. So he's just scooping up these territories of these guys he's putting out of business. Even the guy who gave him the job, the banker bookie who got him in, he got completely busted because Bob turned on him. And later when he was getting out, he was like, how did you survive? And he's like, oh, I managed to like wiggle my way out of it. So I don't think a lot of people knew necessarily who was turning them in. I think Bob was pretty clever about it. And the police said that why they made this deal with Bob and not with other bookies was because Bob was allegedly one of the good guys. He was one of the guys that ran his bookie business like a real business, that he treated people well, that he did not have enforcers. He didn't have people that were going around breaking kneecaps and threatening people's lives for him. He ran it like a very upscale business. So if they're going to get in bed with somebody who's dirty, pick the best 
guy that they'd have the least amount of problems with. And that's why they went with Bob. So that business was just starting out when he met Doris. And Doris was not at all turned off by his unsavory career. In fact, it might have attracted her a little bit. It was that little bit of adventure, that little walk on the wild side, bad boy thing that she was kind of looking for when she was escaping her life with her first boring husband. No offense if you're out there, Bill Beck. Like what she might have perceived as boring in the suburbs. Rough for Bill, Hopefully man. he's not listening. Sorry, Friday man. morning. Roughness. Yeah, I'm sure Bill moved on with a very lovely lady and had a very contented lifestyle, which you cannot say the same for the subjects of this story. So I'm sure Bill is out there living his best life. Bob also brought this East Coast energy and had grand ambitions. Doris described him as a doer. When he set his mind to something, he achieved it. And one of those things was, of course, winning Doris's hand in marriage. He wooed her hard. The couple got engaged shortly after the respective divorces and were married in 1982. Two years later, they welcomed twin girls, Nicole and Alessandra, nicknamed Nikki and Allie. They were August 1st, 1984, so they're our age. Throughout the 1990s, Bob's business boomed. Bob cultivated a very high-end clientele. One of his specialties was to get into the ground floor with rich University of Texas frat boys. At first, yeah, they're spending their dad's money and they have endless amounts of it. And then those guys grow up because it's like the good old boys club to go into great jobs, to become captains of industry themselves. So instead of a lot of bookies dealing with like the lower element, he was like, no, you get in with those frat boys and they'll have money to spend forever. And that's why you don't need an enforcer to go around breaking kneecaps if everyone's able to pay you all the time. Yeah. So he was pretty smart about how he ran his business. And it looked like by the mid-1990s, Bob had 20 agents working for him and was processing 20 to $40 million in bets a year. Now, that is in mid-90s money, so that's more like 40 to $80 million in money today. Wow, that is insane. So he had a big operation. And I think the Angletons were getting some percentage of every bet, of course. I think... I don't know what industry standard is, but I believe it was like 10% or something. So that is a lot of money. I was going to say, how do you not know what industry? I can't believe I don't know industry standard in, in 1990s era Houston bookie business. Bookmaking. <laughs> yes. So Bob bought their $650,000 River Oaks home in cash, which is more like $1.3 million in today's money. He brought the family a beach house in Galveston. And they also joined an exclusive, it sounds like it was like a country club type club called the Briar Club. The Angletons told their fancy new neighbors and country club friends that Bob was a businessman specializing in real estate, which actually wasn't so off the mark. By the mid-90s, Bob had acquired a number of legitimate businesses as well. He owned a courier service, a small shopping mall, and a majority interest in a golf course. Yeah, once you make your money from the non-legitimate source, then you can actually invest it the right way than you are a businessman and owning commercial real estate. You need some businesses to wash that money. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> well, his brother Roger had not had the same sort of luck as Bob. Not in love and not in business. 
Rogers Real Estate Ventures had gone under when the oil boom busted in the 1980s, and then his wife left him in 1989. Rough. Bob gave him a job working as a bookie under him and let him crash at one of his Houston area condos. But unfortunately, Roger did not have the talent and brains necessary to run the business like Bob. And he ended up getting Bob in a lot of trouble. He, he kind of ended up exposing him, I think is how they refer to it, which is he was taking bets that weren't balancing each other out. So Bob would have to potentially pay out more than he was bringing in. So after a couple risky bets, he also wasn't like betting with the right people that Bob had instructed him to. He had to fire him. He's like, you're jeopardizing my business. I'm sorry I gave you a chance. I've given you warnings. You're out of here, Roger. In retaliation, Roger began extorting Bob. He had apparently stole a trunk full of documents that showed basically what Bob was up to in this bookmaking business. And it might have been something also that the IRS was very interested in. Maybe the local Houston PD looked the other way at what was going on. But the IRS would have been very interested in how he was making this money and hiding it. Why are you doing this? Yeah, so Roger was being a big old jerk <laughs> and extorting his brother. And he demanded at one point $200,000 from his brother. This is in the early 90s. And they ended up getting in an altercation that caused a physical fight. But in the end, Bob agreed to give Roger, basically they made a deal and they included a therapist, Doris, and two attorneys in this deal to get it hammered out that he would give Roger 72 grand in exchange for all of the documents he stole. Wow. So they made that deal. And then, of course, this put a real damper on Christmas, as you can imagine, as a family. Uh, yeah. So they did not see each other for a very long time after that. At least according to Bob, the brothers did not see each other for at least four years after this went down. Yeah, I'd say that would cause a drift. Yeah, even worse... I don't know if it's even worse, but add insult to injury. Doris and her mother went over to clean out the apartment that he had been staying at when they told him he had to leave. And they said that they found up to 100 bullet holes in the walls that Roger had apparently shot in the book. They wrote 50 to 100 times. They found all these bullet holes. They had to clean up all that damage, obviously fix the walls. Uh, yeah, that's unhinged. Unhinged. Over the years, that was not the only close relationship of Bob's to begin to erode. Bob and Doris's marriage slowly fell apart over time as his focus moved away from her and spending time with their family and toward making as much money as possible. I mean, it sounds like it was more Doris was like kind of left behind because it, at least he was like volunteering with his kids with softball and stuff. But, you know, he had really gone after her so much. He'd always showered her with presents. He'd always given her so much attention. But he started just constantly working. He had two beepers. They said that even when he was swimming at the country club, he would literally put his pager down when he swams laps and he would do a lap, check his pager, do a lap, check his pager. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. Could you imagine if like he had social media? Oh, oh my gosh. It would have been so obnoxious if he had it like a phone that he was able to be on constantly 
And that's what her brother Steve said, too. They would invite the whole family down to their beach house. And he said over the entire week, we'd, I'd maybe see him for dinner. And that was it. Even after dinner, he'd immediately go back to his office and continue working. So we just never saw this guy. Was this because he was trying to, like, keep up with all their finances and money and, like, had to work? Or he just just choosing to? He wanted more and more money. He was not content. I think he was at this point the biggest bookie in Houston, but he was moving on territories. He wanted to be the biggest bookie in all of Texas. That's why he kept hiring agents. That's why he was staying on top of them. He wanted an empire and he thought he could get away with it. So he was just constantly on top of that. And there was just no top limit to his ambition or greed, depending on how you look at it. They also said that it seemed like he had a lot more disdain for Doris as he got busier, as they kind of grew apart. He kind of treated her like, I gave you this beautiful life. I worked so hard for you. You should just shut up and do whatever I tell you. That's not a partnership. Yeah. And some people were like, oh my gosh, it's amazing. He gives her so much jewelry. One woman was like, she has this whole box of David Yerman jewelry. Remember David Yerman was the thing? Uh, yeah, I remember David Yerman. Yes. I'm sure that'll come back real soon. I bet it will too. It's because we're getting into that now Y2K nostalgia. That shit is coming back. So they said that like it got to a point where she couldn't even say, oh, I love so-and-so's ring or necklace because he'd buy it for her. But that's not what she wanted. She didn't want the jewelry. She wanted emotional intimacy. And she also wanted respect because there were people like she went out to dinner with some people and I guess she had forgotten something or I don't even know like they had missed a time for something something so silly and inconsequential and he was like how stupid are you and he was berating her in front of other people oh uh, not cool very not cool and she also told some people that he was growing controlling over her so he wasn't around but he wanted to know what she was doing and where she was at all times so she was also having a hard time now. Her kids are about to be 13 or they're like now in that tween teen phase. So they're getting more independent. They're spending more time away from the house with their friends, with their hobbies, with their softball. Yeah. And he's never around. And she wasn't working at this point. So she was pretty lonely, too. Yeah. So she sought refuge in a very popular place where you don't have to feel lonely in your own home in the 1990s, the AOL chat room. ASL. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And she did something that not many people who were doing ASL did. She actually did not lie about her age. <laughs> she became the belle of the over 40 chat room. Oh. Yep. That was the chat room she was in. And she was in it. I think she was in it with some people she might have known, too. I think one of her girlfriends introduced her to the over 40 chat room. And she ended up connecting with a lot of people just being friendly. This was a whole new phenomenon. I know that you younger guys cannot imagine this, but it blew our tiny little brains that we could communicate with somebody across the country, across the world. On your computer. On your computer. And that maybe somebody was out there feeling the same way you were about things. It was a very magical moment. I mean, I still get chills when I think of that dial-up sound. <laughs> <laughs> I also feel like sometimes it's easier talking to someone without a face about what you're going through. Yes, it feels anonymous, even though it isn't. So yeah, she ended up meeting some people on this over 40 chat room. And one person that she specifically connected with was this man in New Jersey. And it started as a friendship, but she soon felt herself falling in love with him because he was sensitive, kind, 
he also was going through a similar situation with his wife where the emotional intimacy had died, but they had children, so they didn't want to necessarily break up the relationship. So she started feeling seen, and she hadn't felt that way in a very long time. And so soon the online relationship moved kind of offline, only a handful of times, but she had a girl's trip in Arizona and he made arrangements that he could go out there and meet her while she was away from her husband. Oh, wow. Yep. And then I guess another time he had business in Austin. So they like arranged a meetup in Texas. And then by then they were like kind of head over heels for each other. So they decided that they were going to consider moving forward with divorcing their spouses and not necessarily like getting married to each other or anything, but like seeing where it could go. Without cheating. Without cheating, because they both knew that that was wrong. And Doris also knew that she wasn't happy. It doesn't matter whether she was going to be with this New Jersey guy or not. She just was not happy. And she didn't think Bob could possibly be happy. You know, even if he's busy, and I didn't find any evidence that he was having an affairs as well. He might have really just been married to his business. But it just didn't seem like it was a satisfying marriage. So Doris visited a divorce attorney in December of 1996, and she ended up filing papers in February of 1997. According to everyone who knew them, Bob realized a little bit too late that she was deeply unhappy, as often happens in these things. And he did make a last push to fix things. They went to counseling together. He started writing her love notes again, like he used to at the beginning of their relationship. He also was planning a big 46th birthday party for her, which was obviously coming up April 11th. He was going to get the big major country star Dwight Yoakam to sing at her party crazy. Yeah. So he was like going all out of his way to try to make this party for her. He told her that he was going to actually take time off of work and that they were going to go on this huge summer Italian trip. But she just really wasn't happy. And he found out that it was not going to happen because he called this country club to start making plans for her birthday. And apparently they were like, oh, no, sir, we canceled that because Doris said there was an upcoming divorce happening. Oof. Oh, God. Yeah, so he found out not great way. Yeah, you don't want to find out from the country club mater D. No, no. So he found out about that, and Doris wrote a letter to Bob in February before he received the papers telling him why she was filing for divorce. And she said I, she put it into a letter because she was afraid of his reaction in person. Yeah. Which is a red flag that she didn't feel comfortable enough to tell him and that she was afraid of him. But in the same letter, she also said that she thought that they should both remain in the house until maybe spring break or so. It seemed like the twins were in a play because she said maybe when after the play, I just don't want to disrupt them. I'll sleep in the guest room. Hopefully we can go forward and just put our daughters first. And part of that is not one of us immediately leaving the home until we've gotten them accustomed to this idea. So maybe she was frightened of his reaction, which I'm sure this is a hard conversation. People would be. But she was definitely not so scared that she didn't feel like they could continue to live together because she suggested it. And at first, the divorce did seem very amicable. Being a bookie meant that lots, if not most, of Bob's money was in cash. So Doris and Bob agreed to split the cash that he had 50-50 as a settlement. 
he told her, and now this is 1997 money, that he had $3.2 million in various security deposit boxes. So she and her attorneys were able to freeze those boxes so he couldn't go in there and take the money. And she managed to collect 1.6, which was allegedly half of the money he had. Now they would also have to split the house in half and everything. I was going to say, yeah, all of his other assets that he's... I don't know what part of his business assets she was going to get, but I know she was going to get at least $1.6 million in half of the house. And that amount is almost doubled in today's cash. So it was still a considerable amount of money. It's a lot. And also later, authorities would find so much more that he was hiding from Doris and from the authorities. Really? He had an additional $4 million. I'm talking 1997 money, so I think that's $7 million in today's money hidden that Doris didn't know about and the feds didn't know about. Wow. Yeah, they would find it later. So there's a couple ways to look at what happened next. What we do know is that Doris went to a tax attorney on the advice of her divorce attorney. So one way of looking at it is that she knew that her husband was in an illegal business. She wanted to make sure that her money was clean, and that she was good by the IRS, which her divorce attorney would later say he doesn't know what the tax attorney said to her, but he believed that the tax attorney would suggest that she file an amended tax return, but that would tip off the IRS to more money than Bob wanted to claim or he had claimed. Yep, 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 yep. So there's one way that I've read of looking at it. So even if she was doing it with the best of intentions just to make sure her settlement money was clean, it could still have bad ramifications for Bob. I also heard another version of the story where she suspected, and if this is true, rightly so, that he was hiding money on her and she wanted half of it. And she told him, I'm going to go to the IRS unless you give me half of the money that I know you're hiding. But we don't know that one for sure. All we know is that she definitely saw a tax attorney on April 10th, 1997, which is one day before her 46th birthday. At that 46th birthday, they celebrated at a restaurant together and there was a small group of friends with them. And the friends said that at this dinner, so the day after she went to the tax attorney, they were getting along so well that the friends kind of wondered if the divorce was still on. So divorce attorney, next day is her birthday. That's April 11th. And then five days after that, on April 16th, 1997, Doris was killed in a hail of bullets in her own home. Yeah. It's not looking too good for you, Bob. No. Hear that sound? You should know what that means already. It's the sound of another sale on Shopify. And the moment another business stream becomes a reality. I love it when you get to tell our listeners about Shopify. You know it. Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. Whether you're selling your favorite collectible or beautiful houseplants or like me, dreamy vintage and unique items from around the world, Shopify simplifies selling online and in person so you can focus on successfully growing your business. Shopify covers every sales channel, from an in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform. It even lets you sell across social media marketplaces like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. Packed with industry-leading tools ready to ignite your growth, Shopify gives you complete control over your business and your brand without having to learn any new skills in design or code. And thanks to 24-7 help and an extensive business course library, Shopify is there to support your success 
every step of the way. Jesse, you know, starting a store like Ririku was a huge dream of mine for a very long time. One of the biggest barriers for me was thinking about all of the logistics and details, and it seemed very daunting. Having something like Shopify that made so many parts of it easy, from the website design to the actual process of sales, it made it seem very possible. What's incredible to me about Shopify is how no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify is there to empower you with the confidence and control to revolutionize your business and take your business to the next level. Now it's your turn to get serious about selling and try Shopify today. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash lovemurder, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash lovemurder to take your business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash lovemurder. So we're back to the beginning. The police were investigating Doris's murder. And through the autopsy, they discovered that Doris had been shot 13 times with a 22 pistol. And because it was so many times, they believed that the murderer had stopped to reload the weapon. So this indicated to them that this was, again, not a burglary. Number one, I mean, nothing was rummaged through, let's say. And the fact that the killer had reloaded and made sure the job was done is different than how a burglar would act when confronted in the moment. They would want to get the hell out of there as soon as possible, not stand, reload, and continue to kill the person in the house. The other thing that they noted was that the security alarm was disarmed and there was no sign of forced entry, which meant somehow the killer had known the security code. Yeah. That would obviously point to Bob. He's in the middle of an expensive divorce. There's no apparent break-in. But of course, he has that rock-solid alibi. One thing was definitely for sure, he was not the shooter. But that did not mean that he did not have anything to do with the murder. Bob very quickly told the investigators that he was in the bookmaking business and worked as an informant for the Houston PD. This would mean lots of enemies in a very seedy business. Maybe someone was taking revenge for Bob ratting them out. The police chased down a lot of leads, but everything was a dead end. It did not appear that Doris's death was a bookie revenge murder. It doesn't sound like it. They also discovered that Doris had been having that online affair and they got in touch with a New Jersey guy and he was very devastated, but clearly not involved. The detective is on the 90s deadliest decade and he's like, sometimes you just can tell somebody's being straightforward with you and he had nothing to hide. So the police went back to Bob and said, okay, this is not your enemies. It's not her online lover. Who else would have wanted your wife dead? And Bob said, I hate to say it, but my brother. Love that he's just running down the checklist. He's like, right, with the big Sharpie. Oh, <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe try my brother, Roger. Let's go to old Raj. So he did say he's threatened my life in the past. He's extorted me. He's threatened Doris's life in the past. I don't know where he is, though, because I haven't seen him since he's extorted me, except for, okay, there was this one time, which again, he was just trying to extort me. Like, so I hadn't seen him since 1993. But then just this January, 1997, he showed up and he wanted to meet me to have breakfast at a diner. I said, okay. And when I showed up, he tried to extort me again. He said that he still knew what he knew. He was going to go to the authorities. 
And I said, screw you, buddy. And I threw $500 down and I said, get yourself a plane ride home to wherever you go. I'm not giving you a dime more. And so he said, I haven't seen him since. That was the last time he tried to extort me, but I wouldn't put it past him. Bob also agreed to take a polygraph. That never actually happened. But during this conversation, he did appear honest because he said, I'm willing to take a lie detector test. You let me know. So the detectives now needed to find Roger because if Roger had an alibi for the day of the shooting, even if he's a sus character, he's not the killer. Yeah. Well, instead of finding an alibi for him, they found a whole lot of very suspicious little breadcrumbs. Turns out that Roger had leased an apartment in Houston on March 23rd to go through the month of April. And he had a rental car contract in Houston as well. So he was definitely in Houston at the time of the murder. Okay. And at that time, he's not in Houston anymore. He's not at that apartment. So they don't know where he is. Until five days after Doris's murder, a man traveling under the name Mr. Tratora tried to board a plane from Dallas-Fort Worth going to Los Angeles with a suitcase that contained two guns. Just two guns. Two guns. In the suitcase. So apparently he said he was in a hurry. He came to the airport and said, it was like back in the day where you could show up at an airport and be like, get me the first flight out of here. <laughs> so he showed up and he said, I want to go to LA as soon as possible. And they were like, okay, we can book you on a flight for later today. And then they said, oh, actually, we have one spot open on a plane that's leaving, like, basically right now if you hurry, but we don't have any overhead rooms. We're going to have to check your suitcase. But he had already said yes to the flight. He would have been able to, I think, walk on this flight, I'm guessing, with his suitcase. But they went to check it, so they put it through the x-ray machine. This is all, of course, pre-September 11th. And they saw the guns. Now, these guns did not match 22 pistols that killed Doris. They're just random extra guns, apparently. And when they went through the machine, they're like, uh, sir, you have guns in here. Like, we're definitely going to need to hold you. And then we're going to get security to do an interview with you. And we're not releasing these guns back to your care that you're trying to smuggle on an airplane. And so apparently he's like, okay. And as they were waiting for security to come, he just kind of like backed out and then just swiftly walked to the exit and got away. They're like, Sir, hey, Mr. Trattoria. Mr. Trattoria, can you please not leave? Security? Can you? Hey, you left your guns here, sir. Because he just like abandoned his suitcase and just took off. Okay. So, of course, they told the police, the Houston PD, they had to file a complaint and basically say, also, we would like you to take these guns and see if they've been used in any crimes. And right away, they're like, okay, what did this guy look like? Because we're looking for this guy, Roger Angleton. They send a picture of Roger Angleton to the airline workers who had helped him. And they're like, well, that's Mr. Tratora. That's gunslinger Tratora over there. So it is looking like Roger is up to some shit now. He was in Houston for the murder. He's trying to smuggle guns and get out of here. He's using like a fake name. Apparently he had like a fake mustache on the whole nine yards. It's like half falling off. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So they're like, okay, we really think we've got our guy. But now he's in the wind. They don't know where he went from there. They don't know what he's wearing. They don't know how he got anywhere. He had abandoned the rental car. So they have no idea where he is. Unbeknownst to authorities, he had made his way to Las Vegas, where he married a woman named Jennifer Manning. 
The honeymoon must have been short-lived, however, because apparently she left that same night. So we're going to get into their marriage later on. It's very convenient. So it looks like Roger was kicking around Southern California and Vegas at least for a couple months after the murder. In June of 1997, he tried to check into a hotel in Vegas using a doctored ID. Now, the way that this doctored ID is described in the book I read was that he had like put like a piece of paper like over his real name and like typed another name on top of it. And then like laminated it. That's what I was imagining. Yes, it was like something like that insane. And the clerk was like, okay, this is definitely wrong. And so he was like, I'm gonna have to hold on to this for a second. But like, you can go up to your room. And then he like peeled the paper off to see the real name underneath. And it was Roger Angleton. Oh, my God. This is like Andy back in the day when I used colored pencils and hairspray to turn my 84 into an 81 to get into bars. Literally would take a white, red, and black colored pencil, change the four to a one, and then hairspray it over so it looked laminated like the rest of the car. Oh, my God. Yeah. That was like when I was 18, I went to Miami and I got into like all these clubs in Miami with that sad little New York chalked ID. I just had a fake, like, someone else's ID. When that stopped working, because I went to Boston, and they actually, like, would scan the cards. They could see, yeah, obviously it wasn't going to hold up. So I found, I think I've talked about this on a previous show, but I found a 28-year-old ID who was, like, 5'2 in the bathroom or something. And I was, <laughs> score. I was like, yes, I just have to make myself look short <laughs> and old, because <laughs> I was, like, 19. <laughs> I know, 28 so old. I know. Oh, my God. Anyway, so the clerk is like, this guy, Roger Angleton, tried to pass this fake ID. I don't know why, but he was super suspect. He calls the police, obviously. The police look it up, and he was actually flagged. There was a warrant out for his arrest from San Diego because he had apparently stole some prescription medications. Oh, my God. Like, you already maybe potentially murdered someone. Like, can you stop causing crimes? So the Clark County PD, so the Las Vegas Police Department, they're like, we're going to come and nail him. So they come and they arrest him because there was a warrant already out for his arrest from California. And then they searched his room. Now, apparently the search might have been legally dubious because they said there was a warrant out for his arrest. It was a drug-related offense. We were looking for drugs. But I guess there was a gray area. We don't actually get into it that much later because it doesn't end up mattering that much. But they did burst in and they found a briefcase of mystery and eventual evidence. So we're going to put a pin in the briefcase of mystery. No! There's a whole lot of stuff in this briefcase that they don't know what to deal with, but we're going to come back to it because it's very meaningful to our case here. So they hold on to this briefcase. They're taking it into custody. They also take Roger into custody. So he goes to jail in Clark County, at which time he gets very, very ill and he has to go to the hospital. I believe what happened was that he had a major heart attack. We'll talk about later how he had some very bad heart issues. So I think that this was a heart attack and it was so bad that he did need surgery. So he just got taken to the jail. He has this major cardiac event. And the Vegas cops did call San Diego to say, hey, we have your guy here. But San Diego didn't really care. They didn't care. It was like a lower level offense. And they're like, we're not sending people all the way out to Vegas to come get him for like some prescription drug theft. You guys decide what to do with him. We're not extraditing him. But nobody called the Houston PD. 
So the Houston PD had called San Diego. San Diego said, we don't know. We can't find him. But apparently hadn't been flagged with San Diego. So when Vegas called San Diego, San Diego's like, ah, we don't want him and never told Houston. Yeah. So nobody knows where he is. He's in the hospital. And the Houston PD are desperately trying to hunt this guy down. After Roger was arrested, Jennifer, who was Roger's brand new wife, had tried desperately to get in touch with Bob. She had apparently gone to see Roger in the hospital and then maybe in prison. And he had like made her copy a note, which was essentially saying, I'm in trouble. Charges are bullshit, but I need money and I need an attorney, essentially. Now, this is Bob, who he's supposed to not be in contact with at all. So at the time, Jennifer ended up going to Houston and going to his courier business and asking for an employee that no longer worked there. And when they said that that guy doesn't work there anymore, I need to talk to Bob. And they were like, Bob's on vacation. Bob had gone on vacation with his daughters, probably to heal them from the horrible episode. tragedy. Of, yeah, the horrible tragedy of their mother's death. So... Jennifer was really struggling because she's like, I don't know how to get Roger help at this point. So Bob has a good out here now because he doesn't know that Jennifer's trying to get to him. But now the authorities know that Jennifer is married to Roger and trying to get in touch with Bob. Yeah. And they also found out that when Roger married Jennifer, he made her the beneficiary of a $3 million life insurance policy. So they feel like it's all coming together. They're like, okay, Bob paid Roger to kill his wife to avoid paying out the ass and being exposed to the IRS. Roger told Jennifer that if she worked as his go-between and married him, she, number one, could not or would not have to testify against him. And number two, she'd either get a cut of the money if he got away with it or if he didn't then she would, in like perhaps died, she would get the $3 million life insurance policy. Yep. So, of course, they interviewed Jennifer, but she was wildly unhelpful. She was very uncooperative and said she didn't know anything. She had nothing to say. But they were able to subpoena her phone records, and they saw that she had made some calls to the Clark County Jail. So they called the Clark County Jail, and they asked if Roger Angleton was there, and boom, they finally found Roger. Wow, put it together. Yeah, so what's more, the Las Vegas cops were like, oh, good, that's your guy? Well, you're going to want to see this briefcase full of shit we caught him with. Andy, we're finally back to the mystery. God. The mystery briefcase. You made me wait that long. <laughs> okay, so there was nearly $65,000 in cash in the briefcase. There was a list of when the twins had softball games and the family's general schedule. The times that the twins had softball games were all starred. And the police believed that that was because it was the perfect time to kill Doris because Bob would have an airtight alibi and the girls would be out of the home. Yep. So it's good for a number of reasons. There were written instructions on how to get into the house, including the security code, instructions to let the dog out, and where to stand to ambush Doris. There was a honest-to-goodness contract, like a hitman contract in this briefcase, 
that said Roger would receive a total of $125,000 for the murder. And if he was arrested, the person who ordered the hit, it never said Bob, though, would still have to pay Roger's designated person. Roger wrote, my contract with you is the kill and no squealing. If killed, cut money to designated parties. The method designed by me to give you alibi and permit police to focus on me, which is exactly what's happening. Oh, my God. It also included a note to leave the money at the pharmacy, which, remember, Bob owned a little shopping mall. It had a pharmacy in it. Why did he not destroy all of these letters? <laughs> there's, there's even more. They think that the reason he didn't destroy these was because if Bob backed out on their deal, he had insurance. He could oh use this so stupid against them. Yeah, this reminds me of, okay, this is the second time I brought up Austin Powers, I think, on this show. This is the beginning when they're pulling things out that he owned and they're like a Swedish penis enlarger and he's like that's literally no what he's I like no of. that's not mine and yeah. then he's like that's not mine no it's not mine he's like it's not my bag baby and he's like a book by austin powers called swedish penis enlargers that's my bag baby <laughs> <laughs> this is like them pulling these things out of this briefcase he's like no i'm not a paid hitman and it's like Here's a contract where I, Roger Angleton, says that my contract with you is to kill and no squealing. But Andy, there's more. There's even more. The real kicker was that they found a microcassette. And they knew historically that these brothers did not trust each other. And that in the past, they had tried to catch one another by like secretly taping one another. Yep. Real healthy sibling behavior right here. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> And it turned out that Roger had secretly taped a conversation between himself and the person who ordered the hit. The police would listen in amazement as voice one, who was clearly Roger and was called Roger on the tape by voice two, took instructions from voice two about how to commit Doris's murder. Oh, my God. So it was pretty clear right away to the authorities that voice number one was Roger and voice number two was Bob. Oh, my God. They sounded alike. They had the same New Jersey cadence to their voice. So even though Roger never said the name Bob, the investigators were pretty darn sure that they had him at this point because also he's saying things like this is the code then you go in you let the dog out and you can walk into this room and naming all the rooms in his house saying things that only a homeowner would know of course of course yep so they're like okay we've got him but still he doesn't say bob exactly so they're like not entirely sure so they send all of the contents of the briefcase to be processed and it turns out that one of bob's fingerprints was on the money wrapper that was around one of the stacks of cash that was included in that $65,000, meaning, of course, that Bob had given his brother the money. Wow. So with that evidence, a judge decided that they had enough to arrest him and issued an arrest warrant, and Bob was indeed arrested on August 1st, 1997, which was very sadly the twins' 13th birthday. 
No. I know, guys, bad timing. Oh, my God. I mean, I was just going to say they acted so quick on everything. So quick because the murder was April 16th. Yeah. And he was arrested on August 1st. Allie and Nikki stood by their father 100%. So this was unbelievably devastating to them. They were 100% on their dad's side and they had just lost their mother. They were very close to their father in the months after the murder. They were spending a lot of time together. And definitely I understand, like we've talked about a lot of cases where the evidence is so overwhelming that we wonder how these kids are still sticking by their parents despite all the evidence. But this is just not one of those cases. It's just not as clear. There's a lot of reasonable doubt in this one, especially if you have a parent that's as charismatic as it sounded like Bob was. And there was a couple of reasons why I can see the twins would believe him and also why the prosecution was in trouble on this one. After Bob's arrest, a ballistics report came to light that showed that while all of the bullets had been fired from 22 caliber pistols, they had not come from the same gun that was then reloaded. Forensic evidence said that they had come from two guns. Now, of course, one man can have two pistols, but there was also witness testimony that people had seen Roger in Houston in the company of a younger blonde man. And any good defense attorney could put those things together to say the two voices on the tape are not Bob and Roger. They're Roger's accomplice and Roger, this mystery blonde man. And it was two people who did the shooting because there was two guns that those bullets came from. And we know that Bob wasn't one of the shooters. So we also don't know that it's Bob on the tape. So their case is in trouble right now. And District Attorney Lynn McClellan knew that he had to make a deal with the devil. He's like, nobody's going to believe that this is Bob. I don't know if I can make a jury believe this beyond a reasonable doubt. So we're going to give Roger immunity in exchange for his testimony against Bob. And there was like a way he explains it in the book, how like essentially it would end with Roger probably walking, but he did it in a legally way where it didn't seem like he had full immunity, but he kind of did. It was related to the search in Las Vegas. So Roger's attorney was obviously psyched. This guy is caught dead to rights with his Swedish penis enlarger. And now the DA is coming and saying, we'll basically give him full immunity. All he has to do is turn on his brother, whom it sounds like he never even liked in the first place. Yeah. So his attorney was psyched about this. He told Roger, we're going to make this deal. And a date was set so that the authorities could hear what he had to say. They couldn't do it right away because the attorney, I guess, had another trial in New Jersey at the time. So he's like, I'm going to finish this trial. And then we'll set the date for this. I guess it was a Friday and then they moved it to a Monday, whatever it was. That was the date. They were going to, on Monday, they were going to finally have this meeting. He was going to tell his side of things on the record and they were going to hammer out a deal. But this meeting never happened. Because he had a heart attack. Two days before it was supposed to take place, Roger Angleton was found dead in his cell. But it was not a heart attack, Andy. So, trigger warning, he killed himself, guys. So, we're going to talk about suicide briefly. And it's kind of gnarly. Roger had placed two towels under the door of his solitary cell and proceeded to use seven 
razor blades, like the kind he had taken out of safety shaving razors, to cut himself over 50 times in the neck, wrists, and lower legs. Oh, God. By the time the prison guards found him in the morning, Roger had bled out and the cell was described as flooded with his blood. Yeah, no, that, oh, and it was solitary? It was solitary. No one knew, so he likely did it as soon as they did their last check of the night. Oh, God. So that was not all Roger left, though. He also left a note. He wrote, to whom it may concern, I killed Doris Angleton in an ultimate attempt to begin an extortion program based on fear and the threat of further death from Robert Angleton. Robert owed me money, but I realized that I was wrong to take a life of especially an innocent and good person. I am in constant emotional agony and so decided to end my life to stop the pain. Although I began an elaborate plan to frame Robert for Doris's death as further leverage to get my money, he is innocent. Anyway, I donate my books in personal property and in my cell to the inmates. I hope this tragedy in some way stops someone somewhere from committing premeditated murder. It is one of the few crimes, in fact, the only crime that can never be made right or forgiven. Life is the providence of God and God only. And I leave this world with that thought. Roger Angleton, sorry for the mess. Whoa. He had also left a note for Bob's attorney stating that he had purposely tried to make the murder look as though Bob was a part of it as further leverage to extort money from Bob. So now authorities are like, what the fuck are we going to do? What the fuck are they going to do? Yeah. So Bob's attorney, of course, Mike Ramsey, is delighted when he finds this out. He issued a statement that Bob had lost his brother, so obviously there was mixed emotions. But he said that Bob said he finally told the truth. Now, none of this makes any sense. How would setting up Bob give Roger greater leverage? If he went to prison for killing his wife, how was he going to be able to pay his brother? And how do you roll that back? You don't like say greater leverage. Like if you don't pay me, I'll continue to set you up. It's like you're already set up. And also, did he really set him up? He committed the murder at a time where Bob had an airtight alibi. It seems like if he was trying to set Bob up, he would have done it at a time that Bob could have clearly done the crime. I mean, there's so many red flags. Like, what's up with the instructions, the tape that sounds just like Bob? Like, there's so many. The fingerprint on the money stacks. Yes, and that's what they said, too. The DA was like, so he set him up by purposely getting caught in Las Vegas with this briefcase because that's the only evidence we have against Bob. Yeah. If he was trying to set him up, he would have anonymously sent the tape in to a police station. You did a really bad job setting him up. Yeah. So the defense pushed to drop the charges, of course, saying that the suicide note should be considered a dying declaration that exonerates Bob. So drop the charges. He said he did it. He said he set him up. He didn't work. So let's go. But the DA, like I said, was not so sure. In the contract found in the suitcase, Roger had signed a deal that said he would take the blame and never squeal up to and including death. Roger had recently had that heart attack and the surgery, and his autopsy would show that his coronary arteries were severely blocked. 
He also reportedly had an extremely bad back that was always causing him pain. The DA believed that it was likely that Roger knew he was going to die soon or that just life was not worth living in the pain that he was in. And in prison. And in prison. And he had already, in that contract, he had clearly made a plan for beneficiaries of his to get paid because he talks about the people he designated to get his money even after death or prison. So the DA thinks that maybe this was one last score before he was going to die anyhow or be imprisoned forever. And I personally wonder if this was the last way he could restore what he felt like was honor to himself. This was a promise that he made to his brother, and he did it right before they were coming to have that immunity discussion. So instead of ratting his brother out and then having to go and testify against him at trial and stare his brother in the face, I'm wondering if he felt like death was the only option. It was the only way to get out of this. Well, the people he clearly cared about still got some money. Well, unfortunately for Bob, this was not a get-out-of-jail-free card as the state decided to go through with the murder trial. Crazy. They're very screwed, though. They have no ace witness now. And if the defense manages to get the suicide note in, then they're totally cooked because they'll just say, look, another guy said he did it. Why are we even having this trial? So they were fighting to get the note excluded based on hearsay, and they also hired an expert witness to determine that the voice on the tape, mysterious voice number two, was without a doubt Bob Angleton's. Because if they have that, then they're golden. They have him on tape planning the murder. Can they get like a voice analyzer? This is basically, I mean, still we're talking 1997, but this guy was supposed to be, he worked for the FBI. He was supposed to be somebody who was good at identifying voices. Yep. Okay. And by this point, they had also found more than, I think, six to seven million dollars in today's money that had been hidden from Doris and the feds of Bob's. So he had considerable funds. So point for a defense attorney, though, that he killed Doris so that his dirty money wouldn't be revealed because she was killed and his dirty money was still revealed. So, I mean, a defense attorney could argue like, would he really bring attention to his situation? this way because it was brought to attention and now he's lost all his money anyway. I feel like that one could go either way. You could argue that one either side. Yeah. It's just the whole thing is this is why you don't kill someone. Yeah, it's messy. So anyway, the prosecution got the expert witness to analyze Bob and those tapes and the expert said, no, I am 80% sure that that's not Bob Angleton on the tape. (laughs) A prosecution is like, excuse me? Excuse me. He's giving the security code. He's talking about putting the dog out. He was yelling at Roger not to cut Doris's fingers off to get her engagement ring. It's all stuff that a homeowner would know and care about. Some random hitman wouldn't care if Roger cut Doris's fingers off or killed the dog because the prosecution is saying if you're there to kill a woman, the person ordering the hit's not going to be like, well, leave the dog alone. So... The prosecution believed that how this guy collected the samples was not very efficient because they had one of the homicide detectives who was from Louisiana saying the phrase from the tape, and then Bob had to repeat that. It was taped, and it was sent to the expert witness. Yeah, yeah. And so they were saying he was mimicking the Louisiana drawl instead of using his own voice. So, of course, it sounded different. 
But that's not what you're supposed to be. If you're like the best voice analyst, you should be able to get past the draw. Yes, which is what the expert is saying. So this prosecution is like, no, it's just because he was mimicking this. He was trying to disguise got his voice. Got it, got it, got it, got it, got and it. And okay. the expert witness is saying, no, 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 I can look past that. And he's like, I just can't, I got to tell you, I cannot say it's definitively Bob. The reason why I'm giving you that 20% is because it could be. But I'm not entirely sure. So prosecution is totally boned now because they've opened this door and the expert is saying no. And it gets even worse because the defense finds out about it and they're like, you know what? We're going to hire the same guy because your witness that you hired didn't tell you what you wanted to hear, but it certainly said what we wanted to hear. So we don't even have to pay him to run additional tests. We'll just pay him to come testify for us. Oh, my God. It's a nightmare for the prosecution. So the only good news that came to the prosecution before the trial began was that the judge ruled that Roger's suicide and the notes, the suicide notes, would not be let into the trial. So that's... Yeah, that is good news. Very good news. I think if they had let in, they would have had to just drop the charges. The capital murder trial of Bob Angleton began in late July of 1998. The prosecution argued that Bob had a great motivation to kill Doris. She was leaving him for an AOL chat room affair partner. She was taking half of his money. She was taking custody of his twins. And she was exposing him to the IRS if he didn't pay up. The prosecution argued that no one else could have known the things that voice number two said on that tape, nor the information found in the notes, including detailed descriptions of the Angleton's home in the instruction notes. Also... They reminded the jury that Bob's fingerprint was found on the paper money wrapper that was on the cash that was found with Roger. The defense argued that Roger was a deranged man who was down on his luck, who was in decline both physically and mentally, and who had a lifelong rivalry with his younger brother. There was, in fact, a well-documented extortion that had occurred between the two. And they said that there were two killers on the tape, like forensics proved there had been two shooters on the scene, which is not necessarily true. The prosecution had countered with the fact that the hallway was too narrow for two men and Doris to fit in it. And of course, there's always a possibility a man can be carrying two guns. We know he had two guns because he had two other guns that he tried to take to California. Roger, two guns. (laughs) Roger, two guns over here. And while the prosecution had friends of Doris and Bob's testify that the voice was Bob's on the tape, the defense had two traumatized 14-year-old girls who swore that voice number two was not their father's voice. They also said that voice number two referred incorrectly to the room names when they discussed it in the tape. Like, every family calls rooms differently, whether you call it the living room or the family room, the den or the library. So they were saying that voice number two was saying, and then you walk through this room and you could do this, but he was giving the incorrect names. Their father wouldn't have called the rooms that name. Yeah. But the biggest effect the girls had was on the jury and winning general sympathy for Bob. It was clear that they believed and loved their father. By now, they had lost their mother, their uncle. Their dad was arrested on their 13th birthday. They just wanted normalcy. Oh, my God. Ugh. And so the jury couldn't help but think, looking at Bob, that if they convicted Bob, then those girls would effectively be orphans. Uh, That makes me sick. In closing statements, the prosecution pointed out just how odd Bob's behavior was on the day that Doris was murdered. He was already at the softball game because he was a coach when Doris brought the girls to the game. 
Now, he had had ample time with the equipment at that point to realize that their bat wasn't there. So instead of calling her before she left the house and saying, remember to bring Nikki's bat, he hadn't said anything until they got there and the game was about to start. So the girls needed to be there. And then he said, hey, Doris, can you run back and get the bat? And of course, she was the only one who could do it because everyone else was playing the game or involved in the game. So the district attorney said, why? Why would he do that? My wife would kill me. She would say, no, I'm not running back to the house. Why didn't you call me before I left? He needed her to go and be alone at the house without the girls at a time that he had a perfect alibi. And then, of course, they also brought up, why didn't he go into the house when he came home? Why would a door being ajar when you haven't been able to talk to your wife necessitate you not entering the home, not being concerned enough because you want to keep the scene clean, essentially? In the end, however, it all came down to the brother's tape, as they called it. Either you believed the voice number two was Bob's or you didn't. At first, it was unclear which way the jury was going. Reports came in that they were deadlocked and there were 10 versus two, although the attorneys did not know. So they're finding out that there's 10 versus two, but they don't know which way. Yeah. And then they hear that it's 11 against one holdout. They don't know which way it's going. And then finally, after 18 hours of deliberation, they declared that they had decided on a verdict. So the jury found Bob. What do you think? I think if you're saying that the twins had such an influence on the jury, I think that they're going to go with not guilty. They went with not guilty. Yeah. He was acquitted. And I think, so the jury said that their decision was more based on the expert witness than the girls, but it was kind of a one-two punch because many people believed a witness. There's somebody who's worked with the FBI. They're an expert in their field. And so if that guy is saying... And then there's the emotional and then there's the emotional factor, which is I'm looking into the face of children who will not have any family if I choose to convict this guy for a crime that we're uncertain. We're uncertain about. about. There's a lot of reasonable doubt. I can completely understand why the jury made that decision. And one of the jurors said that they were one of the holdouts because they listened to Bob speak and they thought that the voice on the tape sounded like Bob, but they said, if everyone else doesn't think it's Bob and the expert doesn't think it's Bob and two kids that grew up with Bob don't think it's Bob, then who am I to think it's Bob, basically? I know. Yeah. Yep. So Bob was ecstatic. He called his acquittal the best day of his life. Meanwhile, Skip Hollinsworth said, I think on the show, he said that it was like a movie how people reacted, like some people cheered, some people were crying, there was screaming. Doris's family was obviously very upset that he was like walking out of here scot-free. But Bob's freedom would only last for so long. In 2004, he was arrested for tax evasion related to his illegal gambling operation. See, like you gotta, if you get that kind of miracle in court, you gotta clean up your life, buddy. Yeah, I mean, it might have been Based on things that happened before Doris was murdered, though, because they can go back now and they're looking at him and they were still 100 percent convinced that he did it. So there were some rumblings that he was was maybe able to be charged with Doris's murder on a federal level. So there were some conversations about him basically seeing trial again for her murder. But while awaiting trial, Bob fled to the Netherlands using a fake passport. How old were the girls at this point in time? 18? 
2004, they were 20 because they're 1984. So they were like 1920. They both went to college. I did look them up. I'm not going to tell you guys anything about it because obviously they don't want to be found, but they both look very successful. They both went to school. I know at least one of them has advanced degrees. They look happy. So the girls were older at this point and the Dutch government did find him and they said that they refused to extradite him on any charges related to his wife's murder because he had already been acquitted of those charges, but they would extradite him on the tax evasion charges. So he ended up convicted of those charges as well as passport fraud because that's how he had gotten out of the country. And he was sentenced to 12 years in prison. Bob was released in early 2012. And according to 90s, The Deadliest Decade, which came out in 2018, it is believed that he is still alive and he is still, I wouldn't say on the run because they were never able to charge him again, but he is living somewhere in Europe and I don't think he has plans to come back to the United States. Yeah, no. (laughs) So I think he got away with murder. It was... A fair fight in the justice system. I mean, I know those poor attorneys. It was just a hard one fight. And the big mistake was that expert witness. Man, it's not what they were thinking was going to happen. That was not what they were thinking was going to happen. And then they couldn't put the genie back in the bottle. After so many bags of tricks. Yeah. And I don't know. I don't know what I mean. Those girls are the same age as us now. And I don't know. I mean, there's also that no, I could see if it was my dad and my deranged uncle and my deranged uncle wrote that note. I would say, look at the suicide note. My dad didn't do it. And you already thought that your dad didn't do it before that. It's like all this stuff coming in is. This one's iffy. I got to say, like, I don't know who else would have had the motive. And it seems very odd to me that Roger would do this on his own volition and have that money that was clearly from his brother and have that tape. But also Bob, to play devil's advocate, like Bob could have given him the money to not do it. Like Roger could have threatened that he was going to kill his wife if he didn't do X, Y, and Z. And he did also say that he gave him that $500. Maybe there was the money wrapper on part of that. I don't think $500 is enough for a money wrapper, but still. I don't think so either. There's a lot of devil's advocate here. You're right. And well, he gave him 72000 before. Yes, he gave him 72000 back in the early 90s. Yeah. Okay. Yep. I mean, this is just messy. Yeah, it's it's a complicated case. In conclusion, I don't think bookies make the best boyfriends. <laughs> Maybe steer clear of men <laughs> whose dreams are to run a network of illegal gambling operations. <laughs> Maybe boyfriend's okay, but husband's no. Oh, yeah, only boyfriend. <laughs> that's, that's not husband material Side right piece. there. Also, I'm pretty sure if like four ounces of my makeup remover won't make it through TSA (laughs) and the airport, even back in the 90s, I think it's probably a safe bet that your guns aren't going to make it through. Both of them. Yeah, let's leave them at home, Mr. Tratora. (laughs) Mr. (laughs) Tratora. And your fake mustache. And as always, trust your gut when it comes to love so no one ends up murdered. Thanks, guys. Bye. 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 